In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said to him, follow me. I always had a bit of a problem with this story, and the story is of others like it, called the fisherman, in that it always seemed too uh, simple, as though Jesus, a perfect stranger, walked by Matthew, who'd never known him before, and said, follow me, and just went up and left. It didn't seem very uh, plausible, or in my case, possible to imitate. But it's probably not what happened. Those who Jesus called to follow him already knew about the ministry of Jesus. He'd been teaching in the areas where they lived. Uh, Matthew, the fisherman, probably heard Jesus teach. They'd already begun, most likely, to consider the implications of who Jesus is and what his teachings, uh, uh, how his teachings apply to their lives. And so Jesus came by at just the right moment and, as it were, asked for the order in calling them to follow him. If, in fact, we began to follow a perfect stranger the first time uh, we met a person, our relatives might rightly uh, call the police and start an investigation. But our own call to discipleship follows this biblical pattern as well. We come to know about Jesus. We come to understand who he is and the implications of his teaching for our lives. And then at just the right moment, we hear the call to make a significant behavioral change or to sacrifice something or to be faithful in some new way. And to be honest, I always had a problem with the idea of leaving everything to follow Jesus. I think I've left one thing behind at a number of different stages in the road. And maybe there are still a few things left to discard. But again, I think this is also the way it has always worked. We follow Jesus in that we begin to head in a new direction of obedience and service. But as we head in that direction of following Christ, new implications become apparent. New uh, demands are placed upon us. We are continually called to follow Jesus in new ways. In fact, one danger of mature faith is we might lose the ability to hear the voice of God. We might lose the ability to make radically new decisions to follow Christ. It's something we ought not to lose. We ought to hold on to that uh, hearing of the voice of God uh, no matter how long we've been a Christian. As the apostles uh, began to follow Jesus, they met new challenges and decisions along the way. Judas eventually opted out, and the others had their moments of questioning. One of these occurred at the end of chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Jesus preached a sermon about eating his body and drinking his blood that managed to disperse the entire crowd that had gathered for the feeding of the multitudes because they didn't like what he had to say. And after everyone else left, he turned to his apostles and he said to them, do you guys want to go also? And I'm certain that at least a couple of them entertained 
the idea that the answer might be yes. In one passage, a certain scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responded somewhat cryptically by saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think Jesus meant, I'm not leading you to a fixed destination or on any well-mapped-out pathway. If you are expecting certainty, or if you have any expectations at all, you will be disappointed. Peter followed Jesus and was prepared to fight and die for him. Then at the very moment when Peter thought it was time to fight, when he drew his sword for the battle and was ready to kill the enemy, Jesus told him to put it away, to surrender and run instead. Of course, the martyrdom came later, after Peter learned the kind of battle Jesus was calling him to fight. But there are certain things we can expect from following Jesus. Joy and mission. Matthew immediately became a missionary. He went and told his friends about his decision, or perhaps they just were there with him and saw it. And he invited them to a party with Jesus and his followers. We begin to see why Matthew is such an appropriate patron saint for us. <laughs> One thing that motivated Matthew to tell others was the mere fact that he qualified to be a disciple. Matthew was a hated tax collector seen by the leadership as an agent of the Roman oppression, someone who helped keep Israel under, Roman, under Rome's thumb. And plus, tax collectors were notoriously dishonest, so ordinary people didn't like them very much either. When Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, there had to be at least a little voice inside Matthew's head saying, are you sure? Me? We can imagine Matthew running off and telling his friends, guess who told me to follow him? And we can imagine anyone who witnessed the event saying, guess what person that crazy rabbi asked to follow him? There are people who believe that they are saved by their own virtue and merit, or who believe that they don't need to be saved at all from sin, death, and separation from God. <clears throat> but I think most people, if they're honest, even those who maintain an outward appearance of respectability, have inner doubts in the other direction. We know what's in our hearts. We know the thoughts that we sometimes think. We know the things we've done that we ought not to have done, and we know the things we've left undone that we ought to have done. Outwardly, we may pretend, but inwardly, we know. This is why the call to follow Jesus necessarily involves an experience of grace. Jesus says, you follow me. And we respond, you don't understand uh, who I am or what I've done, or I've got all kinds of things I have to get organized and fixed before I come, or can I think about this for a while 
before I come? And Jesus says, no, you follow me now. And the faith that is necessary to follow Jesus is willing to accept that all the ambiguities will be worked out somewhere later down the road. If we will accept the grace of God, we will experience joy. Biblical joy does not come from human achievement or victory. It comes from the experience of being accepted by God as we are, warts and all. People do not experience joy because they won't accept grace because they won't come and follow Jesus as they are, because they cling to their excuses and doubts. As someone once said, I refuse to be a part of any club that's going to have me as a member. (laughs) But this is the good news. There's nothing about you or your life that disqualifies you from being a disciple other than your unwillingness to come when Jesus calls you to follow. Holiness and obedience are the fruit of grace and joy. Matthew became a saint. He didn't begin as a saint. When we experience grace, when we experience God's acceptance of us in spite of ourselves, We begin to obey God because we want to, not because we are afraid of being punished. St. John says that, quote, perfect love casts out fear. The more we experience God's perfect love for us, the more faithful our response will be. And this is what we learn through the liturgy. We gather each week to remember that Jesus has called each of us to follow him. We gather to experience grace, to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. The whole of the Christian life, pursuing holiness, doing the good works that God has prepared for each one of us, is nothing more or less than our response to grace, to the good news that God accepts us as we are. If we want to be faithful imitators of our patron, we ought to celebrate our election and calling with a party. Today seems like as good a day as any. Though we may laugh about our eagerness as a church to make merry, the habit of celebrating our redemption is in fact deeply rooted in the Bible. Consider this passage from Deuteronomy, which details one purpose for the tithe of grain. Quote, You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice you and your household. There are, in fact, several passages like this that command God's people to essentially have a party, to celebrate 
what God has done for them. The party of God's people is not like the party of the world. We do not celebrate to drown our sorrows, kill our pain, or escape our misery. We gather to celebrate the life we have together in Christ. We gather to rejoice in the grace of God. It is the party of the new creation. And as with Matthew, there is a missionary component to our party. We want to invite others to come and meet the Savior who is willing to have people like us as followers. We want to open new doors of entry to which other sinners can come. We want to make seats available at the table so that others may come and eat with us in the kingdom of God. As Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.